Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gittler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 9 in our series for 2021, and today's date is Friday, April the 2nd. First, I'll be talking to Bill McClellan from Y2Q, which is in the business of building teams. And I'll be talking to economist Saul Leslake, getting his insights on the direction of the Australian economy and how the states are performing. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. But now let's talk to Bill McClellan. Bill, tell us about your business, YQ2. Um. Yeah, my, my business is, is I guess, a, a bit of a new age business in as much as it's taking an old way of doing things and, and trying to change it up. It's, it's a business that actually started off with distributed teams in mind. And I uh, was born of a methodology that was born and bred in Melbourne. And what actually happened was uh, Richard Maloney, who is the CEO globally of, of a license that I acquired, formulated this concept whereby the methodologies he'd used in, in amongst others the Bulldogs, you know, the, the, the mighty Bulldogs, when they won their premiership, uh, both the, the ladies and the men. And uh, that type of methodology that was, uh, I guess, being um, tried and applied in professional sporting teams, rolling that out into businesses and invigorating businesses by actually injecting a, a dimension that I guess normally doesn't exist. And that is, rather than doing a one or two day immersion session with people, you actually do it over the course of an hour or so a week. And the beauty of that actually in this current environment is, is that's what most leaders and people trying to manage disparate teams are trying to do. So, so it's very timely, but it was 
we've been doing this for about two years now and you know working with global teams so that's what we do and uh and we underpin that with um with behavioral analytics so some predictive analytics which again kind of brings together i guess the heart side of the business but the analytical side and and so you're working with kind of what you can't see in the human uh, makeup and that is you know their behavioral makeup and then of course the way they shine and show up in business and that there i guess is how you change the behaviors through these weekly invigorated sessions and and actually invigorate leadership like that does that kind of make sense yeah so tell us about the behavioral analytics that you use for teams well the, the this again is another global platform not well known in australia actually it's uh, Harrison Assessments, and Harrison Assessments, um, this, this technology goes back to Daniel Goldman's time, back in the 1990s, when behavioral science, I guess, uh, was, was kind of really at the EQ, let's call it, movement kicked off, and people learned and realized that managing yourself uh, was inherently the first step before you manage others. This was about emotional intelligence. Emotional intelligence, exactly right, uh, which is, which is a, a huge thing in, in leadership and the way leaders show up. So the, the, the point to make here is I guess you could discover how leaders show up through, you know, watching and, and monitoring every nuance in their behavior and I guess trying to highlight to them that there might have been a blunt in that particular discussion. Or in what Daniel, um, so, so what, what in Harrison Assessments was done, um, the guy, Dan Harrison, he actually put together this, this uh, technology he's been working on for 30 years and as a mathematician, a doctor of mathematics and psychology, he was able to, in 20 minutes, assess an entire 175 factors, as he calls them. So some of them are traits and some of them are, are, are nice to have. Like, do I like to work outside? Do I like to work, you know, in a pressure environment? And based on that appetite, you're able to kind of, I guess, start to work out what a person is more likely to be good at. If you think about it, if you're a golfer and you play good golf, well, you like to play more of it. You play more of it and you, you get better at it. People accolade you and, and so on. If you're actually not particularly good at something, you tend to shy away from it. You know, like I, I'm not a particularly good filer of notes and invoices and stuff, so I, I shy away from it. I tend to not do it to my detriment, of course. So how would I change that? Well, one is I'd know that I've got that weakness or that, that inherent um, liability, let's call it. And what I would then do is I'd either augment it through insourcing someone to help me, perhaps, or in fact, just recognising that I need to bring that to the table. And he uses there another another methodology or tech. This uh, it's uh, the it's uh, paradox theory, and paradox theory talks to the balance. You know, cool to be kind type of thing. You know, the, the, a cool parent only has one operating style. A kind parent only has one operating style. A parent who is dexterous and can move from cool to kindness at, at liberty is hardly balanced in that particular paradox, and can be three things: cruel, kind, or both. So you can kind of see the power in actually understanding where your limitation is and getting that balance right, be that in your strategic acumen, your strategic thinking, the power that you have, your influence, the way you communicate, incredibly powerful. But what then happens is because you've been doing this for 30 years, you know what behaviours as a, as a CEO stack up as being really useful and very, very desirable in a, in a, in a leader of that sort. And you also know what they're, not nice to have thine others. What are Keynes heels are likely to make them less effective, less of an, uh, an impressive leader or an impressive uh, manager for that matter, or person. We all lead it, I guess, ultimately. You know, we manage our homes, we manage people uh, at work, um, yeah, whatever we do. So this technology is, is just game-changing in that regard, and then he's put it together in a platform, and, and businesses now use that kind of globally. You know, there's, there's some really, really big businesses that 
have, have cottoned onto this and have a talent management system, which, you know, most people have accounting systems, but how many people actually keep tabs on how their people are pro progressing from an emotional and EQ standpoint? That's fine that you're applying to businesses here, but tell me, how, does, how do you use that methodology to apply to, I mean, you can apply it to teams, certainly, but how do you apply it to individuals? Well, actually, Leon, it's, it's initially applied to individuals. So everybody is a unique instance of, of a person and everybody shows up quite, quite uniquely. So when you actually go through the 25, 20-minute 20 assessment, you're actually stack ranking what it is in, in, in your makeup that you like to do. So I might, for example, be very, my, my kind of passion might be leadership. So I would know that that's my kind of inherent strength. But I'd also say I, I, I dislike working outside. I know that's kind of quite disparate, but when you take 175 of those and start to pack it together and then bring it out into, into these frameworks that is created technologically, you can get a very, very clear instance, like the, almost like a, an X-ray report of how an individual shows up. Once you know that, you can then start to coach, augment, and facilitate you know, a higher way of, of being as an individual. But then you can superimpose the way individuals show up together and you could, for example, look at an executive team or a senior leadership team and go, well, guys, in terms of your strategic paradox, the way you guys show up strategically, you're all risk takers and none of you are analysing the pitfalls. You're inherently going to take on too much risk the way your minds work together. How can we change that? Or, or how would we bring in a risk advisor whenever we have a board meeting because we're inclined to kind of maybe jump down or, or take on risk that inherently most wouldn't do the, the reverse is true, too. If the entire group's predisposition towards analysing pitfalls, which is the, the, the counter paradox, I guess, if, if they analyse pitfalls to their ad nauseum, they might never ever make a decision and they might never take on any new initiatives. So that business would start to atrophy. Um, therein lies, I guess, the power of looking at teams, particularly senior teams, and, and, and each of those paradoxes and have the innovational thinking etc., etc., and, and I guess you, you, you can start to almost do a due diligence on a, on a team and work out where their weaknesses are. Really powerful. The issue, though, is too, I mean, I've worked in teams, and, uh, but in all those teams, everyone was different and everyone had their own unique talents. How do you manage that when everyone in the team is different? Well, the first thing you do, I guess, is you first understand yourself, and a lot of people don't actually understand the way they're showing up. So hypothetically, in you know, in a communication sense, if if I was forthright in my communication, but not particularly warm and empathetic in the way I did things, I would be coming across to most people as blunt. Now, as a maybe a CEO or somebody who's leading a team, if I'm always blunt, how effective is that going to be, and could that be changed? And the point is, if there's a number of people that in that group all operate the same way and start to mimic the leader and become blunt. Picture that scenario of, a, of a, a group of people now trying to work as a team together and inherently not understand what it is that's holding them back. Bring in an assessment that kind of brings that to, to, to roost and says, hey, this is how you are showing up and this is probably why you're not being effective. That's an aha moment, a real aha moment. Um, it's no different to, you know, a footy side or someone like that. They're out in the field and someone says, look, guys, let's get a kicking coach in. We seem to be missing the, we're missing the four sticks every time. Why don't, we, why don't we try something a little different and, um, and bring a kicking coach in and focus on that particular aspect of our game? So what sort of businesses are you working with? So, I've, I, look, I, the, the point I just wanted to go back to is I'm working for businesses that are typically disparate. So at the moment, I, I'm in a, an organisation, Leishing Hong, um, a Mercedes 
they sell the most Mercedes Benz Benzes in the world. Um, they're largely Eastern based, but they have some presence in 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 Europe, through through Asia, in China, and Australia across the Eastern Seaboard. And I've been working with their leadership teams. I've been working with their teams in Vietnam. And for me, uh, Leon, what a what a what a interesting place to be, where my vicarious and distributed way of dealing with people is via Zoom or or whatever that technology is, I'm finding that very, very powerful. It's, it's how I've been working for the last two to three years. So interesting. And uh, yeah, so that company I've been working with and, um, and, and kind of watching them progress, watching them turn their behaviors around, watching their, uh, certainly their Vietnam, Vietnamese CEO has, has, has seen some really good changes and his team's been invigorated. Their, their numbers have changed. Of course, we're, we're in this um, pandemic and, and I guess we've all gone to ground a bit. But again, I almost see this as being um, a really good time to actually understand what makes your people tick. Interestingly, I just want to say, not only does Harrison talk to you know how you show up, but it talks to how you show up under pressure. And the interesting thing about human behavior is under pressure, certain people will find fight or flight behavior, the classic fight or flight psychological response. And the amazing thing there is where a lot of people at the moment are incredibly stressed, in, incredibly out of their normal environment, culturally challenged, um, and leadership is dealing with change, right? And the issue here is, what is my response to this change in the various dimensions of that paradox? Bringing those together and bringing those to the to the forefront of the leader's attention is, is really powerful. You're showing up as blunt, Bill. That's your, your natural flight response or fight response. How could you change it by being more warm and empathetic? And how much are people responding? Oh, I keep using that same example, but it's 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 game-changing game stuff, really. And and using analytics to show them that rather than telling them is, is, is really powerful. So I use that, those kind of organisations really well. Well, Bill, it's uh, all credit to you with that, with that work and uh, looking forward to hearing more from you. Thank you, Leon, and thank you for your time today. I, I do appreciate it and, um, and for your persistence. It's actually one of the paradoxes in innovation is persistence uh, versus ch- taking on new changes. And uh, I know we work very hard to get this together. So thank well, you. well, I look forward to having a further chat with you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, Leon. You have- and now let's talk to economist Saul Eslake. Okay, well, Saul, uh, we have, uh, you know, the economy seems to be recovering according to the latest GDP numbers, but the figures are very patchy. Uh, you know, various parts of the economy aren't doing that well. And uh, I was wondering how the various states are going. I'd imagine Queensland would be struggling because of uh, the downturn in the tourism industry. Well, you might think that. But in fact, if you look at the employment numbers, which are among the most broadly based of all the economic indicators that we have, they actually show that the employment growth in Queensland from the trough of the recession in May last year has been stronger than in any other state. In fact, the level of employment in Queensland is now almost a percent higher than it was on the eve of the pandemic. And that's the strongest performance as far as employment is concerned of any of the states or territories. Queensland's unemployment rate is a bit higher than the national average, despite the strong growth in employment. But that's because Queensland is continuing to benefit from migration from the southern states, 
although obviously like the rest of Australia, it's not getting any immigrants from abroad, but people have been leaving Victoria in particular in response to its mishandling of the pandemic and its over-the-top policing of restrictions and the like. And that's mean that more people have go been going to Queensland, making it harder for any given increase in employment to show up in a reduction in the unemployment rate. Whereas by contrast, Victoria has, along with New South Wales, the lowest unemployment rate of any of the states at 5.6%. And although employment has recovered reasonably swiftly in Victoria since its lockdown ended about three months after the rest of Australia, nonetheless, because Victoria's population is now growing more slowly than that of any other state or territory because of interstate immigration, it's actually easier to reduce the unemployment rate than it is in a state like Queensland where the population is growing more rapidly than it is in other states. There's one other measure that's useful in this regard that's called state final demand. That's the sum of spending by households, businesses and governments within a state or territory's borders. So it doesn't include interstate or international exports, for example. But again, the recovery in that measure has been stronger in Queensland than in any of the other states or territories. Well, that's interesting. So, uh, so how do you see the different states recovering? Well, at different paces, reflecting their experience of the pandemic and their success in keeping it under control and the natural advantages or disadvantages that each state or territory might experience. So we've already talked about Queensland, which despite its perceived dependence on tourism is nonetheless doing well, partly because it's attracting people from other states, partly because it's probably attracting tourists from other states, especially during the colder months or during the holiday season, because we know that Australians are, once they're confident that the state borders aren't going to be thrown up suddenly again, are willing to spend money that they might otherwise have spent overseas. Instead, either purchasing goods and services within Australia or, or traveling within Australia. Uh, so that's working to Queensland's advantage. Western Australia is also doing pretty well, partly because it's been very successful in keeping the pandemic at bay, something that was reflected in the resounding victory that Mark McGowan's government had at the election there in mid-March, but also, of course, because Western Australia is benefiting from the sky-high price of iron ore and the fact that the mining investment cycle is beginning to turn. In fact, it was starting to turn before the onset of the pandemic as miners, mining companies need to spend more on maintenance and redevelopment of existing operations. Now, iron ore production out of Western Australia is now roughly quadruple what it was 12 years ago. And that, of course, is throwing off enormous amounts of iron ore royalty revenue for the Western Australian government. So much so that it's the only government in Australia and probably one of only a handful in the world that's actually now running and forecasting for the foreseeable future budget surpluses. So they're in a pretty good condition as well. New South Wales, has been doing better than Victoria, partly because it's been much more adept at managing the pandemic and it's done it without resort to closing its borders or other harsh lockdown measures that 
have been so readily resorted to by other states. Indeed, I'd say New South Wales has probably got the balance between keeping the virus at bay and keeping the economy as open as it's safe and possible to do. They've got that balance better calibrated than any other state or territory, I think, and that shows up in most measures of their economic performance. Tasmania was fairly hard hit by the recession that was induced by the pandemic, uh, but it's bounced back reasonably strongly from that. It hasn't done as well as the national average on most indicators, but on some, particularly the strength of the property market, it's also doing very well. And the same can be said of South Australia, that as one of the traditionally weaker economic states in the Commonwealth, and one which did take a hit from the initial onset of the pandemic, it's bounced back quite well also. So uh, summing up, while there are differences in the performance of Australia's states and territories, and I should have mentioned in passing that in most respects, the Northern Territory is still in a fairly dire position as well. They've been in recession for three years after the completion of work on the giant Itchthus LNG project just outside Darwin, and people have been leaving the Northern Territory at an almost unprecedented rate, uh, at least since Cyclone Tracy in 1975, over the last two or three years. So that's helped keep the unemployment rate down in the Northern Territory, as people who've lost jobs or haven't been able to find them have gone back to the Southern states. But most of the other indicators for the Northern Territory are looking fairly dire. So as I say, there are variations across Australia's states and territories in economic performance. But overall, uh, they and the nation as a whole is making a good recovery from the corona-induced recession. And we're in a much better place, no matter which state or territory we're in, than most other parts of the world. Uh, in regard to West Australia, it raises the vexed question of uh, GST. And there's been a fair bit of debate about that. Uh, what's your view about that? Well, my view is that Western Australia has taken a heads-I-win, tails-you-lose approach to the distribution of revenue from the GST. It's perhaps worth reflecting on a bit of history here that the Commonwealth Grants Commission, on whose recommendations the GST is carved up among the states and territories, was originally established in 1936 after what we would nowadays call the Wexit referendum of 1933, when two thirds of Western Australians voted to secede from the Commonwealth, in part as a result of the grievances they felt about the way in which Western Australia had been treated by Federation, remembering that Upon federation, Western Australia, like all the other states, lost the right to impose customs duties, which had been a major source of revenue for colonial governments, and instead had to pay high prices for goods made in Victoria and the other eastern states under what was a protectionist regime there. But as an exporting state, Western Australia was rather disadvantaged by that. But in response to that vote to secede from the Federation, the federal government established the Grants Commission to recommend a fairer distribution of federal grants among states and territories. And for almost 75 years after that, Western Australia got a bigger share of whatever federal money was going around than it would have done if that money had been carved up on the basis of shares of Australia's population. So 
in my view, it ill behooves Western Australians now that they have become the richest state in the country on most measures by a much bigger margin than New South Wales or Victoria were the richest state in the country when they were, that now that Western Australia therefore has to put into the pot rather than draw from the pot as they have done, had done for 75 years, they want the rules changed. And that's why I sometimes say that Western Australians are a bit like a pensioner who's won the lottery and then starts to complain about losing the pension and having to pay income tax. Again, let's reiterate that measured in terms of gross product per head, Western Australia's income is 50% higher than the national average. There's never been in Australia's history a state which has been so much richer than the rest of the country than Western Australia is today. And it's not as if that richness has come about through any great effort on Western Australians' part. They didn't put the iron ore under the Pilbara. They didn't drive the price up to stratospheric levels. They didn't supply much of the capital that was required to develop those mines. Apart from Gina Hancock and Twiggy Forest, most of the capital came either from the Eastern states or from overseas. And they didn't even supply all of the workers that are used to dig it up. Many of those have been fly-in, fly-out workers or people who have temporarily moved to Western Australia during the height of the boom. And then, you know, as I say, Western Australia, which has got money coming out of its ears, thanks to the current price of iron ore and the volume which they're exporting, as the only government in the country and one of the few in the world that is running budget surpluses, expect other states to run bigger deficits and the federal government to run bigger deficits in order to give them a bigger share of the GST than the long-standing formula used by the Grants Commission would say they're entitled to. And unfortunately for the rest of Australia, Western Australians in the federal government managed to convince Scott Morrison when he was treasurer and then prime minister to change the rules in ways that will see Western Australia getting this coming financial year $630 million more than they would have got if the rules hadn't been changed. In the near term, the feds are going to have to borrow more in order to give weight to their guarantee that no other state or territory would be worse off as a result of this favourable treatment being given to Western Australia. But after the year 2026-27, when the transitional arrangements expire, the other states and territories are going to have to cop this. And I suspect that when it dawns on them, how they've been dudded by this deal that the Morrison government imposed on them, they're going to be pretty cranky. And in particular, New South Wales is entitled to be cranky because if by some quirk of fate, the iron ore that's making Western Australia so rich had been at Broken Hill rather than in the Pilbara, then New South Wales would lose a lot more of the royalty revenue it would then have been able to extract than Western Australia would. Well, that's going to be fascinating to watch, and I could imagine the enormous political arguments occurring over that. And Saul so like, thank you very much for your time. You're more than welcome, Leo. So what's happening in the news? Well, the skyscraper-sized container ship that has been stuck in the Suez Canal for almost a week was finally freed on Monday, with the vessel starting to move north following a dramatic rescue mission to reopen one of the world's main trade arteries. Hundreds of vessels carrying everything from oil to livestock were forced to wait in line after the Ever Given became stuck in the canal. 
The accident was a stark reminder of the fragility of global trade infrastructure and threat to further strain supply lines already stretched by the pandemic. Tugboats involved in the rescue sounded their horns as a bow of the Ever Given was released from the Eastern Canal Bank shortly after 2pm London time. Lith Agencies, a transit agent in the Suez Canal, said the vessel was moving north to the Great Bitter Lake portion of the canal. By Monday evening, large ships including cargo containers and livestock transporters could be seen on satellite tracking, moving south through the lower section of the canal, while vessels were also beginning to enter from the Mediterranean side. Boscalis, the Dutch company fronting the rescue of the ship through salvage subsidiary Smit, had earlier warned there was only a 70% chance of freeing the vessel this week after the stern of the ship was moved overnight, cautioning that it was still badly stuck. But efforts to free the bow from heavy clay soil on Monday afternoon using heavy-duty tugboats and dredging operations was successful, potentially allowing the speedy reopening of the waterway to international tripping traffic. Osama Rabi, head of the Suez Canal Authority on Monday, said navigation had started in the canal from 6pm local time and that by 8am on Tuesday, 113 vessels should have sailed through the channel. If they continued at this rate, he said, the backlog of 422 ships waiting at both ends of the waterway could all pass through within three to three and a half days. And hundreds of thousands of Australians started the week with an uncertain future amid a surge of job losses expected following the expiry of the JobKeeper wage subsidy on Sunday. Treasury has estimated up to 150,000 jobs may be lost this week, while Labor market economist Professor Jeff Borland warns the number could be as high as 250,000. According to the Australian Tax Office, more than 1 million employees were still relying on the wage subsidy at the end of January. Those who lose their jobs can likely shift to JobSeeker. However, that will be reduced from its peak of $115,070 to $620.80 a fortnight from Wednesday. There are concerns that cuts to support will further the gap between rich and poor, with new analysis by SGS Economics finding lower socioeconomic regions of Sydney and Melbourne suffered greater job losses than wealthy areas during the pandemic. And a record $296 billion in forecast resources energy exports this year is turbocharging Australia's economic rebound from the COVID-19 downturn and will help offset the withdrawal of the federal government's JobKeeper wage subsidy. China's strong demand for iron ore is underpinning the new commodity supercycle, despite ongoing diplomatic and trade disputes between Beijing and Canberra. While the international push to tackle climate change will challenge thermal coal, Demand will rise for commodities, including copper, used in green infrastructure in the transition to a low-carbon world, as well as lithium and nickel. The record-high resources and energy exports forecast for the year ending June 30 eclipses a previous high of $291 billion posted last year, according to the quarterly report by the Department of Industry, Science, Energy and Resources. Surging mining exports are also helping the federal government's budget recover faster than expected, though it remains deep in deficit. The export analysis shows how the broader mining and energy export trade has shrugged off the tensions with China that have hurt shipments of coal, barley, wine, seafood and wool. China said on Friday it was extending the five-year tariffs on Australia's $1 billion of wine exports for, to Asia's largest mm. economy, exacerbating diplomatic tensions between the two trading partners. Nevertheless, China's stimulus spending on buildings, roads and, and bridges is fueling strong demand for exports of iron ore, which only topped the $100 billion mark, a first for any commodity in 2019-20. And China's Ministry of Commerce has slapped a countervailing duty rate of 175.6% to Treasury Wine Estates Australian Country of Origin Wine in containers of two litres or less. 
And Australian winemakers are pushing to have their case over China's punishing tariffs to the World Trade Organization and are looking to the Morrison government to back their claim. The nation's peak industry body for grape growers and winemakers will meet after Easter to discuss the industry response to the punishing tariffs on Australian wine imposed by China for the next five years and looking for the WTO make a ruling on the matter. And the New South Wales gambling regulator has warned that Blackstone faces an exhaustive probity process in its $8 billion takeover bid for Crown Resorts and flagged that any relationship the US private equity group's casinos have with junket operators in other jurisdictions will be closely scrutinised. While Blackstone has passed probity in the US state of Nevada to operate casinos in Las Vegas and has also been licensed in parts of Europe, the head of the New South Wales Independent Liquor and Gaming Authority, Philip Crawford, said the state will run its own probity processes and take its time to closely check Blackstone's credentials. And Sanjeev Gupta says he's personally overseeing cost-cutting and cash preservation at all of his steel and aluminium plants under a blitz known as Project Athena, and he doesn't intend selling any of his better businesses to help refinance his ailing empire. Mr Gupta is calling the shots from a residence in Dubai and said the noise around this issue of GFG Alliance potentially being dragged down too by the collapse of his main financier, Greenseal Capital, had hurt the GSG business. But he's confident that GFG will be able to refinance its debts, which he considered amounted to many billions, although he declined to be specific. Analysts believe the Greensill exposure is around $6 billion. Mr Gupta's comments were contained in a podcast to 35,000 GFG employees around the world, which is also available publicly. And the COVID-19 pandemic has produced a hothouse environment for online shopping that has seen e-commerce sales outside food generate more than five years of growth in just 11 months. This has propelled Australia to a level of online retail market share previously not expected until 2025. A report from PwC has detailed what its retail, consumer and digital consulting partner, Vanessa Brennan, describes as the greatest digital onboarding of all time and a consumer-led revolution that retailers must follow. PwC projections show that Australian non-food online retailing has more than five years of growth in 11 months. Non-food retail sales hit $2.1 billion in January 2021, which would have taken until April 2025 in line with the pre-COVID-19 growth trajectory. On previous growth rates, it would have taken until December 2024 for online food sales to reach the pre-COVID-19 levels, representing just under five years of growth in 11 months. And the buy now, pay later sector may be booming, but PayPal and credit cards are still the most popular ways for consumers, especially older, wealthy Australians, to pay for online purchases. PayPal, which has been around for more than 20 years, remains by far the most frequently used online shopping payment methods, accounting for 41% of transactions in 2021, compared with 40% last year, according to a big commerce report. Credit cards account for 28% of transactions, up from 27% in 2020. Debit card use was unchanged at 19%, while buy now, pay later products such as Afterpay, Zip, Hum, Klarna and Openpay accounted for 13% of online spending in 2021, down from 14%. And the gender pay gap increased in companies that stopped auditing how much they pay their, ma- their males and females. A new analysis from the Workplace Gender Equ- Equality Agency has found. The new data from the government agency and the Bank West Curtin Economic Centre also shows the gender pay gap could take 26 years to close if current trends continue. Workplaces with more than 100 employees are required to report their pay data to the agency annually, giving a snapshot of the gender pay gap across the nation, across sectors, and in management and non-management roles. 
while the pay gap for total remuneration has shrunk from 24.7% in 2014 to 20.1% in 2020. Some sectors like mining, utilities and finance have made more progress than others. Female-dominated industries like community and personal services actually saw the gap widened. The data didn't include the impact of COVID-19, which data has shown has had an uneven and gendered impact on the workforce. The agency measured what happened in companies that undertook their own internal pay gap audits, showing companies that consistently audited pay between 2015 and 20 saw their pay gap drop across management and non-management roles. But companies that stopped auditing pay after 2017 immediately saw the pay gap in management roles increase by 5.1 percentage points by 2020. The pay gap for non-management roles has also increased in these companies, but not to the same extent. And a pay rise, that means a woman earns more than a male partner, increases her chances of domestic violence by 35%. Groundbreaking Australian research has revealed, suggesting men struggle to deal with not being the family breadwinner. Based on surveys done by the Australian Bureau of Statistics over more than a decade, the same research shows as soon as women earn more than half a couple's incomes, they face a 20% increase in the chance of suffering from emotional abuse. Researchers Robert Bruning, Director of the Tax and Transfer Policy Institute of the Australian National University and Institute Fellow Yinjunji Zhang, found across age, income or country of birth, whenever women earn more than their male partner, there was a substantial increase in the chance of domestic violence. And Australia's oldest energy utility will divide itself in two in a radical restructuring that will see AGL's huge coal power plants hived off into a separate company, while the core markets business will emerge as a zero-carbon electricity retailer. Mm-hmm. The separation demanded by the rapidly evolving electricity market involves new AGL, which will comprise the retailing industry, and Primeco, which will be the country's largest electricity generator, dominated by coal power. The concept of a demerger of coal power assets has been one that has found popularity in Europe, where energy utilities such as E.ON successfully spun off its fossil fuel assets into a separate company. And National Australia Bank will train bankers to support the low-carbon transition plans of its 100 heaviest emitting customers by helping them reduce their climate risk in line with net zero by 2050 Paris Agreement pledges. Over the next two years, corporate and institutional bankers will complete a course developed by Melbourne Business School in partnership with the Climate Reality Project, which was founded by former US Vice President and climate campaigner Al Gore. Bankers will be trained in identifying climate-related financial risks and transition planning so they can better work with customers. The initiative comes as demand for green finance and other initiatives to ease the transition to net zero emissions is increasing rapidly from a low base and still only a fraction of total global finance. And Insurer Suncor thinks the damage bill for devastating floods in recent weeks could hit up to $250 million, higher than estimates from rival IAG. The prediction by Brisbane-based Suncor, whose brands include Vero and GIO, of the flooding and storms costing between $230 million and $250 million, came after it began assessing preliminary damage of the 7,600 claims lodged so far. And the former Holden Car Factory site in northern Adelaide will host a grid-scale storage battery with capacity of up to 150 megawatts to be constructed by renewable energy groups CEP Energy from early next year. The Holden factory manufactured its last car in 2017, and the site was bought by a Melbourne-based property development company, Peligra Group, which is progressively developing a business park and industrial hub known as Lionsgate Business Park at the 122-hectare site. CEP has signed a 45-year lease agreement with the Polygra Group and intends to begin construction early next year on the project, which is set to cost more than $200 million. Mm. 
CEP has been on the front foot announcing last month it would build the world's biggest battery up to 1,200 megawatts on industrial lands of Kuri Kuri in the New South Wales Hunter Valley. At the Holden site, CEP has an agreement with Peligra Group to lease the rooftop of the existing buildings, where it also plans to develop the largest rooftop solar farm in Australia. And a federal Labor government will create a $15 billion loan scheme to facilitate the manufacture of products domestically, Anthony Albanese has promised as he launched the ALP National Conference on Tuesday. The National Reconstruction Fund will be seeded by contributions from government, industry and super funds and would operate in a similar fashion to the $2010 billion Clean Energy Finance Corporation, which Labor established when last in government to encourage the development of low emissions energy sources. The fund will also have a strong regional focus, with an emphasis on areas such as resources and agriculture. For example, it could include producing more batteries using lithium rather than exporting lithium and then importing batteries. The opposition leader also mentioned areas such as food and beverage processing and transport, including increasing opportunities for contributing to the supply chains in the manufacture of cars, trains and ships. Medical science, low emissions technologies, engineering and data science would be other areas of eligible for loans. He said the COVID pandemic has exposed serious deficiencies in Australia's economy, in particular our ability to manufacture products and be globally competitive when it comes to innovation and technology. And News Corp will pay $349 million to, to buy the publisher of the Lord of the Rings trilogy and other J.R.R. Tolkien books. The purchase means of the Houghton Mifflin Harcourt books and media segment of the Houghton Mifflin Harcourt will be part of News Corp. The segment will be operated by News Corp subsidiary HarperCollins Publishers, which already owns the rights to J.R.R. Tolkien's works in the British Commonwealth. Besides the Tolkien titles, the purchase also means it will have control over George Orwell titles 1984 and Animal Farm, and All the King's Men by Robert Penn Warren. The deal gives News Corp control of 7,000 titles in total. The Houghton Mifflin Harcourt Books and Media segment also owns rights to children's titles, such as Mike Mulligan and his Steam Shovel, Curious George, The Polar Express, The Little Prince and Stella Luna. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Adam Reen, President and COO of CapShift, a US impact investing firm that empowers philanthropic and financial institutions, along with their clients, to mobilise capital for social and environmental change. And I'll be talking to RMIT economist Jonathan Boymel about Australia's booming housing market. In the meantime, you can catch me on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing Talking Business next week. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.